Darling, this is David Gork, Head of Public Policy at McFarlane's. Uh, welcome to the first of what I hope will be many McFarlane's podcasts. Uh, on today, we're discussing uh, green finance, and I'm delighted to be joined by Laura Froud, who is a partner in our investment management team, uh, Gavin Haram, who is Head of Policy for Asset Management, and Rachel Richardson, who is Head of Banking and Finance Policy. Uh, and our discussion today is about green finance. We're hearing a huge amount about it in the run-up to COP26, a lot of focus on the environment and climate change, and what the role of the financial services industry might have uh, in this. Uh, and it's certainly something that we as a firm are, are thinking of. So let, let's just start off with the basics and, and what is green finance? Rachel, start us off. Thanks, David. Um, there really is an alphabet soup of terms relating to this topic. So yeah, let's clarify what we're talking about. Um, in this context today, it's really any financial activity that's been created to ensure a better financial environmental outcome. So that would include a range of green products, so a green fund, which has a green objective or purpose in its constitution, or a loan or bond borrowed or issued with a green purpose. Okay, and and, and how are we seeing uh, businesses make use of it? So, Laura, shall I start with you in terms of the investment management side? What are we seeing? How uh, how has the investment management industry responding to the opportunities with green finance. Absolutely, yeah. Well, this is one thing this is not, is philanthropy. So this isn't just about um, uh, an environmental outcome. So clearly, asset managers in particular are looking to launch products that have, as well as a financial objective, also a non-financial objective, uh, particularly here relating to the environment. So we're seeing an awful lot of asset managers looking to launch products that have, to a greater or lesser extent, some kind of environmental remit. And that might be investing in companies that have a commitment to net zero, or it might be companies, for example, I've just launched a fund that uh, is focusing on water and waste and making progress in that field. So lots of, of products being launched. And of course, we're seeing lots of use of the green bond as well. So issuers raising money uh, and using that money uh, to meet some kind of uh, uh, environmental objective, such as facilitating the company's transition to renewable energy sources, for example. And, and can I just ask, and I open this to everyone, what, what is driving this? Is this, um, is this driven by investors? Is it driven by public policy and the sort of fear of government intervention? What, what is it that, that is, is causing the, the, the expansion of green finance? Gavin? It's, it's a bit of a push and a pull, David. I think there's a, a push really from investors um, who want to, as Laura said, who want to target non-financial outcomes as well as financial outcomes. Um, and that means there's a huge amount of demand uh, for these sort of instruments and funds. Uh, you can see this reflected, for instance, in uh, the pricing around green bonds, where it's cheaper to raise finance for a company via a green bond than it is through you know, a traditional uh, vanilla bond. Um, and in addition to that demand, I think there's also a push from policymakers who obviously have broader uh, environmental and social aims. Uh, and I think they're using, to some extent, the finance industry as a sort of tip of the spear um, 
placing regulations, placing policies on on those organisations to drive finance uh, in a way that they are probably less willing to do for various reasons directly through, for instance, you know, banning fossil fuel uses or fossil fuel use or tobacco, for instance. Um, so it's an indirect means of trying to achieve um, environmental and social aims. Laura. Yeah, I'd, I'd also add to that that I think there's a big um, reputational issue here for asset managers. So we're seeing a lot of managers, I think, looking to move into this space, partly because they feel like they should or they want to make uh, changes to the way that they operate their own businesses and the way that they're seen, but but really a lot for their brand, their own brand as well. And I think they're very worried about how they will come across in the press um, and amongst their investors and stakeholders, etc., if they don't make changes in this space. I want to come back to that point in a moment, but presumably there are also opportunities for uh, companies that are looking for investment, um, if they are in that sort of green field, you know, building what Gavin was, was saying, you know, there's a lot of money out there, uh, and if they've got the right, if they've got the right credentials, um, it's easier to raise money if you're in that green field, Rachel. Yeah, so if you um, if you do have good ESG credentials or, or, e- or even just a story of how you're going to get good ESG credentials, because obviously everybody's working from a slightly different base, base point, um, it can attract all of the, the green investment and impact investment for the funds that, that someone like Laura is setting up at the moment. So it does represent a really good opportunity for regular companies to raise finance and, and, and even not just from a green perspective, but from an ESG perspective. So we see things like ESG link lending. So you're borrowing, you can link um, your ESG credentials to a set of metrics. Um, and, 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 and that's the same for you know, equity raises as well. But I think this um, this comes to the, the 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 key part of all this, which is greenwashing. And you've got to be so careful what you are saying in relation to the products you're launching or the the the, the instruments that you're launching, because it's very easy, as we all know, to say an awful lot of good stuff about what you're doing from an environmental perspective, but much more difficult to back it up. So, if I'm an investor wanting to to invest in good green uh, investment opportunities and I want to be really confident that I'm getting the real deal and that we're not getting, you know, I'm not being greenwashed here. What what comfort can I take? How how confident and assured can I be that my investments are going to go where I want them to? I think the key is asking lots of questions of the providers and managers with whom you're considering putting your money, because, as I say, very easy to make statements. Um, but I think it's really important that managers are challenged as to whether they can actually deliver on those statements. And I think key is is reporting from asset managers and other providers and uh, reporting on how they're delivering on these environmental claims. And we'll see a lot more, I think, um, on that reporting coming down the wire from a from a regulatory perspective. Um, but I think it, it, it really, things are not going to uh, change overnight. And therefore, lots of questions are, are required in order to make progress. That's an interesting point on, on regulation. Gavin, where, where do you see the future going? I mean, I think you have to bear in mind a lot of this stuff is long term in Horizon. And to Laura's point, you know, it doesn't materialize overnight. I mean, if you look at net zero claims, for instance, there are a lot of claims 
to get to a net zero point on behalf of companies, governments, etc. Uh, but clearly, evidencing those claims is going to take a lot longer, even than the, the typical holding period for an investment. So you will start to see this stuff becoming more clear over time. Uh, and I think the part the regulation has played in that is to drive transparency within the financial sector and on behalf also of the issuing companies, where they will have to provide this evidence over time or there are issues around you know, regulatory scrutiny that will come as well as the reputational damage uh, and the expectation from investors, which Laura mentioned earlier. But, but very challenging around all of this is is how you get data on, on all of this stuff. So, um, again, a lot of managers will obviously be looking at the reports, the annual reports of investee companies to, to see what claims are being made there. They'll be looking at third party data providers to see how they are scoring investee companies. And of course, they'll be engaging with investee companies. And all of that will allow managers to build up a picture as to whether the investee company is doing what the manager wants it to do. But of course, there are limitations on all of those things, particularly on um, ESG uh, data providers and the scores that they are attributing to uh, investee companies, which vary a lot from one data provider to another. And from a private funds perspective, too, the, the, the data gathering becomes even more complicated because we act for a lot of debt managers. If you're a private equity, um, uh, if, you're, if you're a private equity manager, you have you own the the companies that you're investing in. If you're a debt manager, you don't have that ownership and that degree of control, and so you're not you're not um, doing things like um, driving the ESG change and what ESG policies that those companies have. You're not in charge of that data collection. Um, so there are also subtle differences that and, and extra challenges that that come up in the private funds world too. Now, I just want to expand this discussion because we've talked about greenwashing, which is one of the big criticisms that you hear about green finance. But there's also a, a debate raging at the moment, which is you know, fairly fundamental. Does it do any good? Does, does, it, actually, does it actually help? And there's been some interesting articles written by Tarek Fancy, who was once at BlackRock. And he's made the argument that Yes, you've got the kind of greenwashing side of things, um, but you've also got the point that um, you could have a green bubble. Gavin, what do you say? Do you want to just set out what that argument is? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a few arguments within the, the critique of, of sustainable finance and green finance in, in particular. Uh, the first part, I think we've already discussed to some extent, is greenwashing. How do you evidence the claims uh, that a company is making and that an investor is making, for instance? Uh, the second part is, does it actually really drive change? So, for instance, are asset managers divesting things which are not green? Um, and ultimately, I think the, the proof of this will be, does it change the cost of capital? For companies, uh, and I think we, we've already mentioned earlier, of course, that uh, you know issuing a green instrument tends to be cheaper uh, than a, a regular instrument. So there's an incentive there for companies who can't necessarily evidence the claims they're making. So there is clearly a change in the cost of capital, but um, it hasn't necessarily increased the availability of finance. A lot of this cheap financing has just replaced some of the regular financing that was there. And we haven't really seen the effects in terms of changes in company behavior. So I think there are, you know, there are some genuine critiques there within um, the, the, the more negative views, if you like, of green finance. But I think it will take a, a bit longer to actually find out whether 
changes in the cost of capital will actually come to fruition in changes of behaviour. Another point that comes out from um, the narratives around Tarek Fancy is this this point of the, the placebo effect of um, ESG investing. So the point is that if you're investing in, say, a green bond, if you're not investing in the primary issuance of that bond, you're really just investing in the secondary market and you're, you're, the actual money that you're investing isn't actually going for that green purpose. Now, I would then go on to argue, well, that's just driving more capital so that the, the person that did invest in the original issuance will then drive more of their cash back into the green economy. Um, but others would argue that that sort of creates a placebo effect and people aren't delving down enough to actually look at the, the overall impact of what of, of how they're investing. I agree with that, Rachel, and I think there are probably two other implications off the back of that, uh, which is the, the sort of financial stability concern that you're having a lot of money being driven into the same assets, bumping up a bubble. Um, you know, particularly in terms of green bonds, where you've got a discrete instrument that's there for for green purposes. So I think there are genuine concerns around that. Um, but the other point I would say about this is when you look at changes in the price. Brown stuff, if you want to put it that way, things that aren't very environmentally friendly uh, are obviously quite cheap at the moment. So there is, you know, assuming, for instance, tobacco isn't banned, there is perhaps an incentive there for some investors to want to pick up something cheap as long as the financials in the future exist for those companies uh, that, by which they might be able to turn a profit. Yeah, I mean, that, that must be you know, quite important criticism, I suppose, here is that. Look, there are a lot of going to be still plenty of investors who are going to look for the best possible return, and if the market is is somewhat sort of skewed in the direction of of green opportunities, you're going to get a better rate of return for non-green brown, uh, as you say, Kevin. Um, and given that most of the market isn't green finance, most of it isn't ESG, what what actually does it do in terms of changing behaviour. And I think yeah, that's going to be one of the big challenges, I guess, for ESG and green finance over the next next few years. Rachel, you also believe though that it really does do good. It's not just it's just not virtue signaling. It actually does do economic good. I think I think the point that I would make is that is that no impact or ESG or green investing is the same. And so what's really important is to look at each investment on its merits of whatever form that might that might take and and actually do your own research so so we we, we act for some clients who are um, they're looking at ESG ratings and things like that but they're also coming up with their own frameworks for evaluation and, and really delving down into what the overall impact is because there are some businesses out there that are really highly rated on ESG but actually their overall impact in the world might not be considered to be that positive. And so I think just not relying on um, a particular metric or a particular rating is quite important, but to, but to actually delve into the real finer detail for each investment. Yeah, and I think it's it's without doubt that this is just driving a conversation apart from anything else in the way that things like diversity and inclusion have been high up people's agendas over recent years. And whilst those issues have not been fixed, people are talking about them much more openly than they ever have been before. And I think this is true of, of, of ESG issues too. And what is interesting is that a lot of asset managers have been very quick to try and launch ESG products or green finance products. And then they very quickly had investors ask questions of them and their own organisation. And they've had to hold up a mirror to themselves and ask questions about 
you know, are we are we acting in a way that is consistent with these kinds of ESG products that that, that we are issuing? Because that that is important too. Yeah. I agree. And I think that conversation is a good thing because I think part of the issue with value investing is people have different values. So there are, there are obviously trade-offs here. I mean, if you take a look at, for instance, the EU who has moved quite quickly to try and regulate this area, the big debates there in terms of nuclear power, is it green or is it not? And if you look at something like tobacco, for instance, which you know, clearly is harmful in health terms, but also many economies in the less developed world are highly dependent on tobacco in terms of their living standards. So clearly there needs be conversations around this sort of stuff and whether something is green or not is apparent, I think, in some circumstances, but not in every circumstance. So we shouldn't expect, I think, uniform outcomes eventually. I think this stuff will continue, particularly with technology changes and perceptions of risk change. I think the conversation will keep going on. But let me play devil's advocate here. So we've got something which is, you know, we've got a conversation going, we're getting people looking more carefully at what they do. But if we really want to change behaviour and shift away from carbon, for example, um, surely there's sort of voluntary elements of this. And you know, well, investors say it'd be nice if it wasn't you know, to fossil fuels, and can we encourage a bit of divestment? But it's a big market, and there'll, there'll be other opportunities uh, for, for to find investors. Um, if we really want to change behavior, we need to price in the externality. You can't really do that on a voluntary basis. This needs to be done with something like a carbon tax. And that's the serious way in which we do this. And to a certain extent, you know, I put it to you, is that this is, this is you know, lots of people you know, being active and doing things and feeling good about it. But, but if you really want to switch the allocation of resources, it's governments have got to step up here and, and, and put a carbon tax in place. Absolutely. And I think what, what's evident from this conversation is that actually it's been investors and the asset management industry that's been driving a lot of this change. And that I really think that you know, policy from government and law and regulation that will flow from that is behind. And, and hopefully what will come from... COP26 and the various conversations around that will be a huge drive of change to public policy, um, law, regulation that will do exactly the things that you've just mentioned, David. Yeah, Rachel, to, to make this conversation boring, I, I agree on this point, in fact. Um, I think what has been shown is the inactivity on behalf of governments, and by which I mean there's not a lack of regulation in this area, but very much the burdens uh, and the, the, you know, the need for transparency, etc., has been pushed onto the financial sector, which is fine. But to go back to our point about changing the cost of capital, you really do need government intervention, whether that is in terms of carbon taxation, whether that's in terms of actually banning certain sorts of activities. Um, the lack of direction means that you are going to have this ongoing conversation, which is good because the, the you know the diversity of values that we've mentioned. But ultimately, there are certain things which you will be you know, definitely not green. And I think unless you've got very definite government action on that, um, you are going to get people shifting into brown for financial reasons, for instance. And, and, and Laura, just to bring in, you in here, it, it, it's, it's important and people are demonstrating their values. It's good branding. 
Um, but they're, in a way, trying to buck the market and actually need something bigger than investment managers and investors to buck the market here. Isn't that right? I, I totally agree with you. I think the problem is that, as Gavin mentioned, so much of this is so nuanced. So carbon tax is quite an easy one in a way because carbon emissions are measurable and you can you can apply tax to that. But as Gavin's pointed out, with things like tobacco or you see all of the issues around trying to score... Um, Tesla, for example, from an ESG perspective, how nuanced that is as an organisation from uh, environmental and a social and a governance perspective, actually, um, that it, it's a bit less black and white in some other areas, I guess. So, yes, absolutely, we need that that regulation, I think. But there are other areas that are a bit fuzzier, that are a bit harder, I think, to have that kind of um, blunt regulation and then still need that discussion. Going back to tobacco as an example, when you buy a packet of cigarettes, the majority of the price of the cost of those cigarettes are in things like taxes that then account for some of the negative externalities that then result from that person smoking that packet of cigarettes. Um, If I buy a pen, I would like to think that in the future that all of the negative externalities that have arisen as a result of me, of this pen being produced and then shipped to me to then use in this office, will be factored in to the price of this pen. Mm. Now, now that then leads to lots of other conversations about a dress transition and the cost of um, things going up. And is that fair for different people in society? But we will have to address those with other bits of public policy, I think. And perhaps the incentive for governments to claim tax, of course, without necessarily banning an activity because a government is claiming tax. Do you think we will reach a common set of standards? We've seen, for example, in the field of asset management, we've seen um, the European regulators Uh, legislating and trying to come up with uh, a common taxonomy. Um, It's so difficult. It's so difficult. And especially to try and apply that from a global perspective, trying to get agreement um, across, across the world is just so challenging. So a question for all of you then. In terms of green finance, in terms of ESG, um, where do you all think we are going to be in five years' time in terms of where the market will be, where investor behaviour will be, where regulation might be? Let's, um, Let's start off with Gavin. Well, I think on the positive side, you are going to see an increase in data and information out there related to the green or not green behavior of companies uh, and investments. So I would expect you are going to see behavior, investors' behavior, driven a lot more by grounded information. Uh, Although they might be going in different directions, they'll probably have a sounder basis to do it. I think perhaps on the negative side, and to follow on from, from Laura's point, um, it is very difficult to define this stuff, and governments and regulators are going in different directions. I think the big risk, perhaps, in public policy terms, which is obviously my area, is, is fragmentation. I think you are seeing different iterations of trying to solve the same problem. So defining what is green, for instance. Uh, and what that means in terms of companies, I think, is capital becoming less free-flowing globally. 
uh, more trapped, more dependent on local regulations rather than global agreement. Although I have to say, I think there are attempts there. The G7, for instance, back in June, July, uh, has made an attempt, I think, in, in the climate space to try and have some sort of global agreement. But it's very difficult because of the nuances we mentioned. You know, slight changes in, in regulation can mean for asset managers, for instance, difference between maybe to market a strategy in two or more countries or only being locked in one country and needing something different for elsewhere. From from a debt lawyer's perspective, I'd like to see every loan should be a sustainability-linked loan, i.e. that won't be a distinct separate debt product in itself, but every loan will be an ESG-linked loan. And so every debt document will have ESG metrics woven in, and it won't exist as a separate criteria. Um, outside of that, um, I don't think we have much time. I think we all saw the um, the press reports after the IPCC report came out um, last month, code red f- for humanity. We've got sort of the next 10 years to really drive change. So the next five years are really critical to that for all of the public policy um, reasons that we've already discussed in this, in this podcast. Laura. Yeah, I I think there will be more regulation. And as Gavin said, there will definitely be more data allowing people to make informed choices. So I think it's incumbent on all of us to really keep asking questions, whether that's of the asset managers that we are putting our money with, whether that is um, the, the, the shops where we are spending our money, constantly asking questions. That is the only way, I think, from the ground that we're going to be able to help influence change. Thank you very much. Uh, I think it probably leaves it to me to thank our panellists today, uh, Gavin Harron, Rachel Richardson and Laura Froud. Um, I hope this has been helpful and useful to you on what is, I think, one of the most important and fascinating uh, developing areas of green finance. Uh, and uh, I hope uh, you will tune in to future podcasts too. Thank you very much. Thank you.